Our Lord and our Father, we thank you for the daily provisions you give us. Everything we have comes from you. You provide for our physical needs, and you provide the daily mercy that we need so badly. Help us to receive your daily mercy. Help us to acknowledge our need for your mercy so that we can hunger for it and then recognize that it has been abundantly provided to us. And then, having your great mercy in our minds, in our hearts, and on our lips, help us to show that mercy. Help us to be ministers of that mercy to the people around us. Lord, give us deep repentance and horror for sin. Father, we are tempted in many ways. Keep us from temptation. Keep us from falling to these temptations. Help us to resist pride by remembering our great need for you. Help us to resist selfishness and self-pity by remembering Christ's self-sacrificial giving of his life. Help us to resist the influences of the world by remembering that those ways are perishing and you are coming to judge all who have succumbed to the world. Help us to hide ourselves in you. And when we fall to temptation, help us to confess to a trusted brother or sister in Christ so that we can rest in our forgiveness from you. Lord, we pray for other churches around the world who are working to be ministers of your mercy. We pray for Bangalore Evangelical Church where Bush and Chandra Thomas serve you. We ask you for more mature believers to be raised up there who want to serve you by serving their local church. We pray that their display of the gospel would be pure and undefiled by the world so that you would receive all glory. We pray for Temple Philadelphia in Mar and for Marcel in Ouagadougou. We pray for protection for them, for all who desire to oppress their church. Give them courage and boldness and wisdom as they work to spread your gospel. We pray that those who oppress you would have their hearts changed by seeing the way your people love one another. We pray that as that country continues to be in turmoil, that your people would be a stronghold of peace, uh, knowing that their protection and their rescue rests in you alone. We pray for ourselves as well, Lord. Every day with those mercies, you give us the chance to be more like you. We ask that we would not waste the opportunities you give us to hate sin more, to love righteousness more, to be more and more willing to give up our lives for the sake of your name. We have been bought by you through Christ, so we have no claim to our lives. Use your word this morning through your Holy Spirit to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, it's good to be here with you this morning, again, going through our study in Joshua, and I'm going to invite you to turn there to Joshua chapter 6, it's the chapter we're going through this morning. Now, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with my great-great-uncle Lloyd. My Papa Lloyd was a World War II vet. He had spent his time as a gunner on a B-24 bomber based in Seething, England, which is on the east coast of England. He successfully completed his tour of 30 combat missions and returned to the United States where he married my great aunt Deal and pursued a career in civil engineering. And when I was growing up, my parents would drop my 
younger siblings and I off at their house while they would run errands in town. And this might come as a shock to most of you, but our meal of choice with my Uncle Lloyd and Grandma Deal would be Taco Bell. <laughs> and I spent many hours crunching crunchy tacos and t- chatting with my Papa Lloyd about the latest professional wrestling match that he had watched, uh, his old Buick 88, and his time in the Air Force. And our conversations would frequently drift to his missions over occupied Europe. And I remember him on more than one occasion telling me how sweet it was when the planes would limp back over the coast of England and they'd see that coastline in the horizon. And they'd make it and they'd land the plane safely and they'd get back to their bunks and they'd hear taps played on the bugle. And he told me he loved that song so much because it meant that he survived another day and it was a time to rest. And the irony here, of course, is because Taps is also the song that is played at military funerals. And I remember how emotional I felt when my Papa Lloyd was laid to rest at the Willamette National Cemetery and they played Taps at the end of his funeral. He had lived a long and a full life, but he had not made it to see another day. His tour here on earth was finished. And it was that same bugle tune that had two different meanings depending on the context. And in today's text, we see the same thing. A trumpet blast announcing good news for the Israelites as they moved into the promised land. But it also had a different meaning for the Canaanites who were in the land. And if you're taking notes this morning, I've titled the message, Announcing the Good News in the Promised Land. Announcing the Good News in the Promised Land. Well, let's take a look at the first five verses of our text this morning. Joshua 6, 1-5. through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. This shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall, sh- shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now we see this is another transition point in the story. The Israelites have entered the promised land. They have renewed their covenant with Yahweh, as we saw last week, rolling away the stain of the wilderness wanderings and enslavement in Egypt. And they celebrated the Passover. The covenant had been renewed. And now they are initiating the takeover of the land, but it would clearly be the Lord's doing, not their own. As they quickly wasted what would have been an advantage in crossing the river, But this chapter follows the pattern that we've seen here in the first part of Joshua. The Lord speaks the plan to Joshua first before the plan goes into action. And Joshua is the conduit or the mediator of God's word to the people. We've highlighted this before, but in this role, Joshua is a picture of Christ. He hears from God and then relates that good news to the people. And here in the first five verses, we see the rest that is found in the good news. 
the rest that is found in the good news. God was ready to continue the journey into the promised land with his people. And we saw last week that the Israelites had continued in obedience to God through circumcision and celebrating the Passover. They had consecrated themselves for service to the Lord yet again. And the image here is one of purification and remembrance. The Lord had given the people these signs to help them remember that they were saved not by their own power and that they were called to be holy and set apart from the world. And the story of Joshua leading God's people into the land is a story that is focused over and over again on God's faithfulness. And it is a picture of God restoring what had been lost at the fall. Recall that at one time in our ancient, ancient past, God and man dwelled together in perfect unity in the Garden of Eden. There was no division between God and man. But because sin entered the picture, we were no longer holy or clean. And we could not remain in the temple that God had created for us to dwell in. And so we were driven out and forced to wander until God made a promise to Abraham that he would one day give his people another land, like the Garden of Eden, where God and his people could dwell together. And it just so happened that the physical location of that new garden was the land of Canaan. And so for generations, God's people had been waiting to enter the land. And God now tells Joshua, here's another step forward in my plan to redeem this land and make it holy. This was great news to Joshua and the Israelites. They had been waiting for a long time. But God was showing them again his faithfulness. He's telling them, here's what I'm going to do to prepare this land for us to dwell together. Brothers and sisters, we know that God has not changed. He has continued to be faithful to his people. And so while we recognize today that the promised land is not the Near East, it's not Israel and Palestine, we recognize the spiritual reality of God preparing a place for us to dwell together. You see, we do not enter the promised land by our own doing. We saw this painted really clearly in chapter 4. God has sent his only son, Jesus, to be the better Joshua, to be the better Ark of the Covenant, to lead us by his sacrifice on the cross, his blood shed on our behalf, to lead us into the promised land. And then we saw again in chapter 5, Jesus has come to do battle against his enemies. That was at the end of chapter 5 that Nick preached last week. And so we don't drive out our enemies, the spiritual forces that would keep us from holiness, by our own power. That's what we see painted here this morning. God is telling Joshua, mine is the battle. Yours is to respond in faith. And this is good news for the Israelites, and it is very good news for us. You see, if we were left to our own devices, none of us would be able to enter the Holy Land. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's perfection. But thanks be to God, because while we were dead in our sins, God chose us to be righteous through his Son. And so God gives Joshua this good news. You don't have to do anything but announce my presence with the ark and the trumpets, and I will do the rest. And the fascinating thing about how God is announcing his presence is how simple and humble it is. It's not this massive show of force. He tells them simply to march and blow the horns. Now, trumpets are mentioned 14 times in the first 20 verses of this chapter. God is calling his people to listen 
to the warning and to be ready to act. Historically speaking, the trumpets would have been used for two different functions in the Israelite camp. It would have been a signal that it was time to break camp and move to the next location. Or it would have been a call to Sabbath, to devote yourselves to resting and reflecting on God's goodness. And today, we see it used here in the same way that it was used uh, at the Festival of Trumpets. Here's what it says in Leviticus 23 about the festival. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So this festival is celebrated. The, the priests would just spend the whole day blowing their trumpets, and people would take a Sabbath to remember what the Lord had done and reflect on the previous year and the upcoming year. And this festival is still celebrated by Orthodox Jews as the start of their new year. And it was incidentally just celebrated this past week. And this festival happens at the start of the seventh month. It helps to set the stage for what is considered the holiest month on the Jewish calendar because it sets the stage for the next two festivals that are celebrated, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. The Day of Atonement would come after this, where the Israelites would remember God's divine justice and righteousness. And then the Feast of Booths, celebrating God's provision in the Holy Land and how he led them out of Egypt. And so when the people of Israel saw the ark and heard the trumpets being sounded as it was marched around Jericho, this connection to the Feast of Trumpets would have been clear. They would have realized that it was time for rest and reflection, a time to do no ordinary work, a time to acknowledge God's presence and holiness, a time to prepare themselves to face God's judgment and thank him for his provision. The Israelites, especially Joshua, would have seen the connection, especially in light of the conversation he has at the end of chapter 5. God is again reinforcing for his people that he is doing all the work. They simply rest in his provision. This has nothing to do with the effort of the Israelites. This is God working on his own behalf to purify his temple, his dwelling place on earth. Notice back in chapter 5 what the commander of the Lord's army says. At the end, just up the paragraph. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. That's the wrong question. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to my servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The commander, which many commentators believe was a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, came with his sword drawn to make sure that Joshua knows that he is only on the Lord's side. He doesn't take a human side. He's here for his own glory, for his own righteousness and justice. He is here to do work. His sword is ready 
He has come now. And then the Lord says to Joshua at the beginning of chapter 6, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Notice the tense there. I have given it to you. The work has already been done. It is a time for you to rest. The rest is more of an act of faith that you trust that I'm telling you the truth. And this is a massive picture of the gospel in our lives as believers. And so my question for you this morning is, are we resting in the good news of the gospel? Are we finding rest in the good news of the gospel? If you've been in this church any amount of time, you've certainly heard the gospel preached. This is the good news that God loved us so much that he sent his very presence, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, to live the faithful life we couldn't, to defeat the enemies that stood in our way, to guide us and give us the key to eternal life with God. And this key is not a work that we do. We don't strive for it. We don't earn it by doing X, Y, Z tasks. It's not tied to any performance metrics. It's simply a rest, a rest and a response in faith to the work that Jesus has already done. Now, if you have not responded in faith to Jesus' free gift, don't let today slip past. Talk with one of the members here, one of the pastors, about what the gospel means. The saying goes, today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Don't wait to put your faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have responded in faith, Philippians 1 tells us that God is faithful to complete the good work that he has started in us. So even after we respond in faith to the gospel, we don't need to question, am I really saved? That's the wrong question. Because God is and will always be faithful to finish the work that he has started in us. And so the question we need to be asking isn't really even a question, it's more of a statement. Lord, increase my faith. Soften my heart to be more like you. The good news is that God is faithful and he has always been faithful and will always be faithful. In the past three years as an elder of this church, in pastoral care situations, in decisions about church business, there's been ample opportunity for me to press my own advantage, for me to push my own opinions and agenda instead of resting in the gospel and having faith that God would prove himself to be faithful. And in those moments when I've forged ahead with my own plan that seems really, really good, when I've acted hastily, you guys will be shocked to know that it's rarely worked out well. <laughs> On the other hand, when I've trusted in the Lord's mercy and provision, and when I've waited for him to act, when us as elders have waited for him to act, even if people don't respond how I think they should or how I would want them to, I know that God is glorified and that the good news is faithfully represented. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book of the New Testament. He wrote in chapter 1, and I think he was really on to something, when he said, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, because anger does not produce the righteousness of God. 
And this is something that I'm praying the Lord will improve in my life and in the life of this church. That we would be quick to listen to one another, slow to get angry, and that we would be quick to rest in God's faithfulness and provision. One of the things that I've realized about being a Christian is that it is a long game that we're playing. Yes, we urgently and passionately preach the gospel wherever we go. But we control absolutely none of the outcome for the people that we preach it to. It is God alone that can change hearts. And so we don't need to put pressure on ourselves or on our church to perform a certain way. We simply preach the gospel and we rest in God's provision. We trust that he is here with us and that he is doing the work. And I can't say it any better than how Doug Payne put it a couple weeks ago when he was preaching on discipleship. He said, the success of the church rests on the head of the church. And as God's people, our hope for tomorrow is built on Christ. And we can rest well in this, knowing that he has done the work already. And so God gives Joshua this good news. He is going to take care of this obstacle himself. God's people can continue to rest in his mercy and grace. He will do the work. They simply respond in faith to God's faithfulness. Let's go, go back to Joshua 6, 6 and pick up where we left off. We're going to read through verse 14. <clears throat> 6, 6 through 14. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven or trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the, se and the second day they marched around the camp once and returned into camp. So they did for six days. This is again the pattern we've seen so far. God speaks to Joshua. Joshua tells the people and they respond with obedience. They set out to complete the work God has given them to do. And here we see the people proclaim the good news. This is a proclamation of the good news. A proclamation of the good news. As soon as Joshua relays the plan to the people, they act. And they set out on what seems to be a very bizarre mission. They go around the city six days in a row, blowing their trumpets and nothing else. 
This is the, a story that only really kind of makes sense because we've heard it so much in church. It's almost like we think, well, yeah, this is how we knock walls over before we had wrecking balls. We march around the city six times, we soften them up with a little horn blowing, and then on the seventh day, more horn blowing, and then we shout, right? This is how walls are knocked over in the ancient Near East. This, it, it's only because we've heard it so many times that it's like, oh yeah, well, this is how we do it. We forget how strange these last couple of chapters have been in the context of a military conquest of the land. You see, nothing about this makes sense from a military perspective. You wouldn't try and cross a river at a flood stage. And then once you had safely and miraculously crossed, you wouldn't circumcise all of your fighting men. It's just not a good idea. And then once they had healed, you wouldn't set aside another week just to eat and remember the Lord's goodness. None of this makes sense. And now here's another point of history that I'd like to bring up because, again, it's a little difficult to separate the flannel graphs and the VBS stories from what the actual history is because we've heard this story so many times. You see, when we think of Jericho the city, we may have certain images conjure up in our mind. And if you were born anywhere from 1988 to 2000, the most prominent image might be two French peas hurtling insults down (laughs) at other vegetables. I know that's immediately what came to my mind. Those silly little pickles. I couldn't resist. But here's what we know as a matter of historical archaeological evidence. Jericho was most likely a military outpost that was home to mostly professional soldiers. And this could be an explanation for Rahab's successful business enterprise in that city. Its walls were probably 20 to 25 feet high, and the outer wall was likely a raised earthen berm of sorts, almost like a natural retaining wall, not this massive structure of cut stones that we kind of think it might be. And Jericho's circumference was probably around three-fourths to one mile. It probably had between several hundred to the low thousands of residents. One lap around the city at a decent march would have taken about 30 minutes or so. And so we're talking about a city that while it would have been an obstacle for the Israelites to overcome, they most certainly would have been able just to push right through it. Nick mentioned last week there was an estimated one million men that Joshua had at his disposal. So at the very least, they could have just circled the city and waited them out, right? This wasn't Helm's Deep or the Black Gate that they were trying to storm. This was just a basic walled city. But when Joshua gets the battle plan, he's probably thinking, this this doesn't make any sense. I've got a million guys, and you're asking me to march around the city? When we see Joshua meet the captain of the Lord's army in chapter 5, he was devising a battle plan. He was near the city, searching it for a weakness, trying to find out how he was going to just storm the city. But we see the Lord's grace even in this bizarre plan. It would have been a relatively easy military victory for Joshua, but he would have lost lives. His rashness would have hurt innocent people. And a siege also would have taken valuable time. 
But the Lord had a better and much more gracious plan for everyone involved. Brothers and sisters, this is the point. The Lord is gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And 2 Peter tells us that God is not slow in keeping his promises, but his desire is that no one should perish and that all would come to repentance. And even though he had allowed 400 years for the Canaanites to repent, he gives them one last chance to change their ways. So instead of storming the city or laying siege to it, he commands Joshua to proclaim the good news one more time by marching around the city and blowing the trumpets. And Joshua and the people again respond in obedience to God's commands. They march around the city day by day for six days, blowing their horns. And this proclamation is an announcement of pending judgment. And the Ark of the Covenant, this mythical, legendary thing that the people of Jericho have heard about, was marched around the city. Anyone in Jericho could have caught a glimpse and seen that it was, in fact, a real object. This was no fish story or product of ancient exaggeration. This was the real deal. This was a final warning that the day was coming where they would have to face their chosen enemy. And it was clear that something was happening as the Israelites marched each day. God was calling this city to repentance, to make peace with him while they could. And at the same time, he was reminding his own people of his sovereignty, his holiness, and his power. Turn with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. After the Gospels, Acts and Romans, 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord the gospel 
The good news is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the ultimate sign of God's power to us who believe. God has repeatedly used what the world would deem foolish or unwise to display his love and faithfulness in the world. But this is, in fact, the good news that we proclaim here as we gather every Sunday, that Christ was crucified, buried, resurrected again on the third day. And he has since ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father in power and will someday come again to judge the living and the dead. And none of this makes sense to the world that is perishing. Why would we as Christ followers voluntarily give up our time, our talents, and our treasures to a God who asks us to follow him even into death? But this is the gospel, that we love God and we love each other, not because it is in our own power to do so, but because Christ first loved us and has left us with his Holy Spirit that empowers us to live righteously. And so we proclaim this in letting the world around us see God's presence in our lives personally, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, in our gathering together. The Bible tells us that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for each other. Brothers and sisters, do we proclaim the good news in our love for each other? How are you doing in showing love to those in your household? Students in the room, how are you doing in showing love to your parents and your siblings and your teachers? Employees, how are you showing love to your coworkers and your employers? Single folks, do your interactions with your roommates and friends reflect the love that Christ has for you? Would the world recognize you as a disciple by your love for others? Here's what Paul writes again to the church in Corinth, if you want to flip a few pages just to the right. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 17. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 17. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what it has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For those of us who have received and responded by faith to the gospel, we carry it around with us wherever we go. The external circumstances we face every day are difficult. There is no doubt of that. We face difficult work circumstances. We face sickness and disease. We face the challenge of raising children in a culture that wants to snatch the truth of the gospel from them. We face the crushing weight of being sexually pure in a society that teaches us that if we don't give in to every desire and temptation, we are being inauthentic and therefore something less than human. We face the allure of trading gospel truths for political power and influence. But we are not destroyed by any of these things. Because we also carry in us the truth of the gospel. And as we go about our lives, this preaches to us and it preaches to those around us. And it is a joy to be surrounded by a people committed to preaching the gospel to one another through their love and lives shared. We're not trying to change the world, per se. We're offering the world an entirely different way to live. This is the invitation that we extend to the world. See God's goodness and his faithfulness. Follow him. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And God's people proclaim the good news wherever they go. Let's look back in Joshua chapter 6 and we'll read the rest of the chapter together. Joshua 6, and we're going to read through 15 through 27. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things, that have, the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. 
And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and all and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Here we see God's people and the people of Jericho respond to this good news in different ways. And this is the choice uh, is no different than the one we face each and every day. We have received the good news and we can rest in it. We have proclaimed the good news or heard it proclaimed to us. And now each and every day we have the choice to respond in light of that good news. So this is the response to the good news. The response to the good news. And this is going to sound like old hat because we've mentioned it as a theme so often here in the first six chapters of Joshua. But it's here yet again to highlight the contrast between how it's going for the Israelites and how sideways it will go in the next and future chapters. Joshua and the people of God respond in faithful obedience to the good news. For them, the directions were straightforward. March around the city, blow the horns, and at the end, shout, and let God do the work. This was God's people continuing to rest in his faithfulness. Notice again that it was the seventh day, the day of rest, that God did the work for the people. Again, it is interesting how often we hear about the trumpets in this chapter. And it's not just calling back to the Feast of Trumpets, it's looking ahead to Revelation and the trumpets of judgment. This immediately brought my mind back to what we studied um, in the last book of Revelation. And starting in Revelation 8, we see angels blowing trumpets announcing God's imminent return and a call for repentance. And I want to revisit this just briefly. Definitely go back and listen to those teachings if you're interested in more detail. But here's what it says, Revelation 9, 20 and 21. And this was after the first six trumpets of judgment. And it says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These trumpets of judgment were horrible plagues and consequences that were sent down on the people. But notice the posture of the people here. There is no repentance. There's no acceptance of responsibility. There's no acceptance of God's power to judge. They double down on their rebellion, even though they can see that defeat is imminent. This is the same foreshadowing that the story of Jericho put forth. And we see another picture of God's righteousness and justice in this text. Ryan talked about this in chapter 3, and I mentioned it earlier, but God had promised the land to Abraham several hundred years previously. 
But he did not let the Israelites occupy the land then because he said that the sin had not been complete. He wanted to give those people a chance to repent. And this is the Lord's mercy at work. He gave them centuries to turn from their evil ways, but instead they continued in their rebellion. And so it came to this moment where God's people had crossed the Jordan River by a miracle, and the hearts of the people of the land melted. They knew that judgment had arrived. But instead of turning to this God, who by their own admission was great and powerful, it said back in verse 1, they shut themselves off. They withdrew into their city. No one came in and no one went out. And again, by his own description in Exodus 34, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is willing and able to forgive sin, but he is also just and he will by no means clear the guilty and the rebellious. And so we see this complete destruction of Jericho God was just proving his character and his faithfulness again. The people had heard about God, but they still refused to accept his power and his authority. The wicked people in Jericho faced judgment that they deserved, and they had ample opportunity to repent from it, but they didn't. The people there heard warnings for six days of what was to come, but they did not seek any terms of surrender or of peace. They shut themselves in their city, and it seems like their minds and their hearts were hard. But God is not concerned about this. He still goes about his work of cleansing his temple, his promised land, of all of the filth and unrighteousness he finds there. Now, if we look just a little bit further in Revelation, this is what it says in Revelation 11.5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth, This isn't the right text. This is two weeks in a row. I would uh, blame my slide people, but this is 100% my fault. (laughs) Revelation. Let's just go there together. Sometimes it's hard to flip to the back because I always end up on weights and measures. (laughs) I'm sorry about that, guys. Revelation 11.15. There it is. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. That sounds familiar. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet, there's a shout. Voices proclaim that the kingdom of the world, Canaan in our story, has now become the kingdom of Christ. And again, this is foreshadowing, right? This is what Jericho puts forth all the way to Revelation, through the cross. The promised land, which was temporarily under control of the world, has now become God's place to dwell with his people yet again. So the people of God respond in obedience. At least most of them did, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But the people of Jericho hardened their hearts to the message of Yahweh's kingdom coming. But there was a third character who we saw in that last section in Joshua. And it is actually this character, Rahab, that pictures us inside the church the most. You see, we also were part of the kingdom of this world. But we have received the good news. We have heard it preached and proclaimed. And we, like Rahab, respond to the good news of salvation by faith. 
The text from Joshua tells us that God and his people were faithful to Rahab and all of her household. They saved them alive, even though the text says they were taken outside of the camp. They were still living. They didn't get slaughtered like everyone else. And it says, even to the day of the writing of Joshua, Rahab and her family was dwelling with the Israelites. You see, God has taken us who were far off, who were his enemies even, and made us into a people who are set apart for service to him. This is the good news. Again, we were once not a people, but we have now been chosen by grace through faith to be a royal people, chosen to carry out the Lord's work until he returns. When we are confronted with God's power, with his righteousness and his justice, we can respond in faith or we can harden our hearts. And this should go without saying, but it never works out well for those who harden their hearts to God and to his good news. When we come to faith in Christ, we are justified. Our sins are forgiven. We have been made new, but we are not perfect. There are pieces of our old flesh that linger in us. Old habits, old ways of thinking, familiar temptations. And as we walk in faith, little by little we are sanctified. We grow and we have rest that the Lord will grow us. Our hearts are renewed more and more and made more and more into the likeness of Christ. We continue to mature and reflect God's love more accurately to the world around us. And this happens in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is the very presence of God given as the ultimate helper to God's people. It brings conviction of sin and reminds us of all that Jesus has taught us. And so as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we respond the way that Rahab did, the way that Joshua did, in faith that the Lord's will will be done and that he will be faithful. Here's what Hebrews 11, I'm going to remind us of the reading from this morning. Hebrews 11, 30, 29 through 40. I'm going to pick it up in 29. <clears throat> By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they, were attempted, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, but because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, 
that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. As Christ followers, we join this rich family tree of heroes of the faith. We're grafted in to this family of God. These folks did amazing things in pursuit of a relationship with Yahweh. But we have it way better than them, Hebrews tells us, because they still hadn't received what had been promised, namely Jesus Christ. They looked forward to the day when God would send his Messiah to right the wrongs of the world and secure a kingdom based on righteousness and justice. But they didn't get to see Jesus come. And since we live on this side of the cross and resurrection, we get to anchor our hope and our faith in him alone. Look ahead with me right there, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, in light of this great faith, this family tree, this promise, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because we have this rich lineage of faithful heroes, and because we are joined together in this body through Christ, we can lay aside these things that hinder us, these things that keep us from faithfulness. And we partner with the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to run this race with our focus on Jesus. And as we go out from here, Mission Fellowship, may we receive the gospel with thankful hearts, resting in the promise that God has already won the battle for us. May we go forth from here proclaiming the good news of who God is and what his son Jesus has done in our words and in our love for one another. And may we respond in faith to the good news of your coming kingdom until Christ calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are faithful. We have seen the good work that you have done for us, but not for us, Lord, but for your glory. We pray, Jesus, that we would respond by faith to that good work that you have started. We pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear the Holy Spirit working in us and through this body of believers. We are thankful for this cloud of witnesses and those who have modeled for us what faith looks like, that we might be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.